You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. How many have been praying? For, I assume a lot of you have been praying for Bobby Asa. We titled his story last week. Hit by a car as he's backing into his driveway, one of those absolutely crazy accidents that should never happen. Comatose in the hospital. Uh, unresponsive, they tried to withdraw the trach tube and it didn't work. Uh, Well, he, as of this morning, is off the trach tube, breathing on his own, which is huge. Yeah. And he he is giving some conscious response, despite all the brain damage from the accident. But I just, you know, I just think of, golly, just like that. He's a Part of the youth group over at Good Shepherd came to Christ about a year ago. The boy that hit him, same story. Youth group, Good Shepherd, came to Christ about a year ago. And it just, gosh, who can deal with this? You things go wrong. Technology fails you. Any of you been failed by technology recently? <laughs> go talk to Tom out there at the VBS desk. He bought beach balls for the universe that's going to be in here next week. And one of the beach balls, the sun, I'll give away something, six-foot beach ball won't go through the doors. (laughs) What do you do? (laughs) He's got a solution, but it it, it took some finagling. Last week, I gave you an email address to send suggestions to me. I can't get to that email address. (laughs) It's, It's a new address, and we forwarded it to my Gmail account, and now I can't get to anything. So thank you for all those who sent wonderful ideas, but I haven't seen them. (laughs) You never know. It just, and Daniel has just, for those of us on the preaching team especially, has just been a, what a challenging book. And I talked to a number of you, and it's been the same kind of thing. This is just, it just, it's a, it's an in-your-face kind of book. And, uh, so what I'm doing today is just, we're just calling it uh, Living as a Creative Minority. Just lessons from the whole book of Daniel. So instead of the expositional sermon we normally do, we're going to do kind of a summary sermon, thinking back to the book as a whole and to the Bible as a whole, as we come together and think about that. And we're thinking about lessons from Daniel. And I thought about just re-preaching all the sermons, but I figured that, you know, that might not work out real well. Besides <laughs> which, Jay wouldn't give me the time. He wants to sing, so... Human kingdoms have what? What goes in there? Human kingdoms have what? Both beautiful and beastly aspects. Daniel's in Babylon. The hanging gardens of Babylon were the wonders of the ancient world, exquisitely beautiful. People would come from all over the place just to see the gardens. The, 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 really the, Empire of Babylon bought a peace and a civilization to that world that would have been unmatched to that point. But if you didn't do it in the king's way, you looked at a lion's den or a fiery furnace. It was an evil place and beautiful. Human, that's true of kingdoms in general. Human kingdoms seek power, that highest of narcotics, it seems power, that once you get a taste of it, it just, it's entrancing for certain types of people. The whole Lord of the Rings series, written about the ring of power and Sauron and the addictive power, 
once you put the ring on. The ring of power, they seek power by cunning or force, or both, and use it to gain wealth and privilege for themselves. Nothing's changed. But Nebuchadnezzar, brilliant general, became an extremely self-centered ruler. Cyrus the Persian, who defeated Babylon, we see in Daniel chapter 6 and following, it just, it's there all the time. It's a power that's destructive, unless it's done in godly ways. Human kingdoms seem unconquerable. Who can bring an end to Babylon with its incredible wealth and incredible military power? But they inevitably fail and fall, inevitably. You know, the thing about the Lebanon team, I've been in teaching Lebanon a number of times, have a, a lot of the students I taught there from Syria. And the Syrian civil war that our team is ministering to right now, it's very personal for me. And the irony was, a few years ago, Lebanon was in civil war. And Syria came in and put an end to that war by occupying and dominating Lebanon. The first time I was there, I saw Syrian tanks and soldiers running down the streets. Now it's reversed. Lebanon is a stable power, and Syria is in total disarray. And that happened just all over the place. Human kingdoms inevitably fail and fall in due time. And we recognize that. They have their place. God appoints. Human kingdoms cannot save or destroy the people of God. Anywhere. I, I look at the Soviet Union. I, and uh, my heart's been drawn to Poland this week. I, I'm doing premarital with Eric Burnell, who lives in Wrocław, Poland. We've been there several times teaching. His soon-to-be wife is Haley. She's near Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm in Portland doing premarital. Is there anything weird about that story? <laughs> but it's just uh, some things have gotten my heart even more back to Poland and dominated by the Soviet Union, by Nazi Germany. Those two kingdoms are gone now. And the heroic spirit of the Poles lives on. And they become a very significant nation in the European Union. New kingdoms don't save the people of God. One of the things we're really liable to here in the United States is believing that the United States is the government of God. It's not. But for many people, that's really hard not to deal with. So they're really mad that they have stolen our country. And who they is depends on your political side. And there are more righteous kingdoms and less righteous kingdoms, but... They can't save or destroy the people of God because we serve an eternal king. It's a lesson that we need to remember. Daniel chapter 3. <coughs> Big image, worship the image, or fiery furnace. The guys that promoted, some of the Jews came to, they came to Nebuchadnezzar. Some of the Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to your majesty, and they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. That's a death penalty. Nebuchadnezzar calls in the three young men 
And they respond like this, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, but, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's a one-way ticket to a torturous death. Would we do that? I've never been in that situation. I don't expect ever to be in that situation. I wonder what I'd do. We don't set up images like, they, like Nebuchadnezzar did, but I think of the images that are part of our society. The temple is the, the mall. The image is a sex-craved, sex-crazed picture, male or female or both or neither. The great god Narcissus rules in our society. The great god Aphrodite rules in our society. The great god Mammon, money, rules in our society. Take out your dollar bill and look at it. What does it say? In God we trust. What is the meaning of God? You're holding it for many people. The dollar bill is the God, not Yahweh. Jesus follows worship only the triune God, ultimately. Now, there are other places to give value for sure, but always under Yahweh and under his lordship. Daniel teaches that again and again as we go through the book. Philippians chapter 3 where we'll be going after we finish Daniel. Jay will be back next week to take us through that incredible last chapter of Daniel, thing of eternity, as the vision closes there. And Daniel says, or Paul says here, our citizenship is in heaven and we await eagerly a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, he says. Peter puts it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, he's speaking to Jewish people spread throughout the empire, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. We live in a place where sinful desires sell. Living such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify the God when he visits us. What does it call us to do? Daniel's the same thing. And that is, what we do here is we are citizens of heaven, first of all. I don't often say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore. I'm not in context where that's done. Does anybody say it anymore outside of maybe, I don't know where you say it. Do you say it in schools anymore? I do. When I say it, I always cross my fingers. Although I am pledging allegiance to my country, and I mean it, I cross my fingers because it's always subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Always. That tension is a hard tension to live in. How can I be truly patriotic? I remember when I was in the Philippines, Sharon, I lived there for three years, and in the theaters, as they begin a movie or a sports event, they, in the theaters, they do a, re, a rousing rendition of the Philippine National Anthem with a flag up on the screen and all that sort of stuff. And I was up at Camp John Hay, went to, uh, went to a movie there on the 
American camp up in Baguio, and they began with this theme with the Star Spangled Banner. I was deeply moved, deeply moved. But I always, my first allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Citizens of Heaven is Sojourner's exile in our country using our power, and we have a lot of power here in the United States. We use it to serve and to protect. We have a lot of power in our society as the church. We're constantly told we don't. We do. We have a lot. We use it to serve and protect. That's why we have community care days. And it's not just a day. That's just one day we gather as a church. We're constantly serving around DHS, Gresham Elementary, East Elementary, our community through Hogan Gardens over here. So many other things. Journey, Vacation Bible School, 500 kids. We've got a lot of kids in this place, but nowhere near 500. They're going to be tromping through here a week from Monday. Come help out. It's epic. Moses' command to the king. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. That's not a bad start to describe a lot of kings. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is right for himself on a scroll, a copy of this law. What would happen if every mayor, every governor, every president had to sit down and copy just the Sermon on the Mount, much less the whole Bible. He's read it all the days of his life so he may learn to revere the Lord his God and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. That's the standard of a godly leader. We have godly leaders. We have some incredibly godly leaders in our government. We have the very good fortune here in Gresham to have a very godly man for our mayor. Shane Bemis, whom I honor, not only is a very, very highly qualified politician, but a godly man, a member of our community. And I do honor him and others like him. We have a number of them that are doing this and doing it well. But there's also the Psalm 139. It's been kind of my haunting verse for the past 18 months or so. Search me, O God and know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. Search and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That prayer should be ever on the lips of a leader. So Jesus' followers advance God's kingdom that's at work now and will ultimately prevail. We also see and confess our sin, Daniel chapter 9. He realizes we're soon headed back to Israel. What does he do? A most godly man ever gives an epic prayer of confession of his sin and the sin of his people. No defensiveness. He understands the deep sea of mercy that we just sang about and goes to the God of all grace saying, search me, know me, see if there be any wicked way in me. It's, it's the way of Jesus. Now we know there's wickedness in us. We know there's integrity in us too. We're not ashamed to say, I'm a man of integrity. We also are not ashamed to say, I've got some real nasty brokenness in me. And we say to our people, help me. And grace people do. That's what the community spirit is about on both sides of that. Looking at our society, I say these as speaking for myself. This has all been through the elders, and we've talked about these things. But I'll stand for myself at this point. Our society is not going mad. It's not. I see so much stuff that's coming around and say, this is the worst ever. It's not. 
it's not. I remember 1968. It was a terrible year. Horrible year. It's year Sherry and I got married. <laughs> that was a bright spot in a difficult year. But all of us remember the assassination of Dr. King, of Robert Kennedy, Chicago riots, Democratic Convention, LA riots. Horrible year. Our society's not going mad. It's always a chaotic, complex, broken place. So that's why he kept saying, when you look at what's going around, calm down. Everybody's calling us to panic these days because you can manipulate panicked people. Calm down. Be faithful. Preach on. We still say that because that's what we should be doing. Our society is permeated with a self-centered ethos. More so probably than in my memory, and as I do my historic reading, it may be the most in the history of our country at the level of entitlement and self-centeredness, not only being done, but being promoted, emphasizing authenticity, I must be who I am, emphasizing feelings and the liberty to self-define. Anybody who tells me I can't self-define without limit is an evil person, an oppressor, making me the oppressed. And we give huge moral authority to victims these, these days. That ethos is the song of the serpent. That self-defining ethos that says, I will give authority to nobody unless they agree with me, is the song of the serpent. And we say in response, Jesus is Lord. And our society is enforcing tolerance which is a code word, <laughs> doesn't mean what the word says, but it's a code word for approval of this ethos as secularism becomes a civil religion of the culture makers. And that's being pushed hard in the progressive liberal elites through comes in many sides of our society. And we recognize that as Daniel responded to that, we respond to that agenda in our society. And the way we respond to it is important. There's a phrase that's been floating around, and I've spent a good time looking at it, just called creative minority. I don't know where the phrase began. The first place I ran across it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who in one of his incredible sermons said, almost always the creative, dedicated minority has made the world better. And of course, at that point, he was thinking of the Church of Jesus Christ. On your sermon notes, I've got a list of resources here. And the first on that list is Jonathan Sachs, who's the chief rabbi of Britain. And he did a speech, a part of the Templeton, in 19, or 2013, and it's been published in First Things, just called On Creative Minorities. It's a brilliant, brilliant speech. Speaking as a Jewish rabbi, but speaking to Abrahamic religions in particular, it's brilliant in how to live as a creative minority in a society. John Tyson, who's also listed here uh, in a lecture he did at Reality San Francisco, defined a creative minority this way. As a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. How different from the culture of authenticity that's around us a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons. 
full image of God persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world, John Tyson. It's a great picture of the church. And it's a call to us to be that kind of a thing because so often church becomes a inspiring meeting that we go to on Sunday morning. And see, if you've dumbed down church to that level, you're not doing church anymore. Church is not just, I mean, we do have inspiring meetings and we'll continue doing that. We call them worship services because that's what we're here for is to worship and remember who is king of the universe. But if all you're doing is an inspiring meeting, you're not doing church. That web of relationships is not just, it's, it's commitment. In a web of Facebook relationships, nobody will come to you when death invades your home. In a church, people will be there. How can I help? In fact, they might become a bit annoying because so many of them show up and say, how can I help? That's what we're talking about when we talk about a creative minority, a tight group of people who pray together, eat together, play together. One of the things I've looked at in churches is I've seen more and more churches moving away from doing community together, saying the church is over-programmed. And there's some truth to that. But the other hand, I see churches now beginning to have early morning prayer meetings where people come to the church building and gather together just to pray and maybe worship a bit before you go off to your daily responsibilities to begin by remembering who we are, a creative minority practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. Tyson puts it like this. You've got one option is syncretism, and that's living only for what is presently available and accessible. That's the way of the... That's the way of the Sadducees in the day of Jesus. They were the political compromisers. They were, you know, let's, let's, let's just adapt. That's the way of the progressive liberal church these days. On the other hand, you've got separatism, withdrawal from culture and waiting for another world. That was the way of the Pharisees and the Essenes in the day of Jesus. That's the way of the fundamentalist today. It just dropped out of culture. And what he calls is to live like Daniel, and we live in exile. As a creative minority, living fully present, but longing for another kingdom. I think that's a good description. Now, we're not nearly as much exile as the church, say, in Iran is right now. That quickly growing church in Iran that we hear almost nothing about. First John 3, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. That's what we are, he says. The reason the world does not know us is it doesn't know him. We are, as a creative minority, people of the book. We are people who find our identity as children of God, whatever else we are. Whatever else we are, we're first of all children of God. Not just I, but we, children of God. First point of identity, people. Philippians chapter 2. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Are we talking like heaven? 
so that you might be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. That's a call to live as a creative minority. Jeremiah, who Daniel was reading just after the passage, I'm going to quote here is where it says, in 70 years you're coming back. So Daniel was focusing on this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says those I carried from exile to Jerusalem and Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. And also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to whom I've carried you in exile. That's Babylon. A horrible, evil place. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's the call for us. Galatians 6. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Especially those who belong to the family of believers. We contribute to the common good. Even around its evil. We contribute to the common good. Now, we don't serve the evil. But we serve the good. We promote good in the society. And we help our country find its spiritual dimension. Which the culture is adamantly against in many ways. I said I've been drawn to Poland because of some recent events. This is June 2nd, 1979. A Polish cardinal six months earlier had been elevated to the papacy. John Paul II is the name Karawatia took. And he approached the leaders of Poland, whom he knew well, and asked for permission to come back in, to his own country as pope. And they were real quantity, didn't know what to do because having him come back is incendiary. Refusing him the right to come back is incendiary. So they put some very strict limits on him. They refused to publish anything about his visit. The teachers told the students in the schools the evil man with the golden robes. And in Victory Square in Warsaw, one million Poles showed up. One million Five days later in Krakow, his home city, two million people showed up. You're trying to get a picture of the crowds there. It's, it's impossible because it's so large. John Paul II stood and did mass. And as he was doing it in his homily, he said this. What is the greatest work of God? Man. Who redeemed man? Christ. Therefore be declared, Christ cannot be kept out of history of man any part of the globe at any longitude or latitude. The exclusion of Christ, the exclusion of Christ from the history of man is an act against man. The crowd began to sing in Polish. We want God. We want God. We want God. One million voices refused to be silent as the Pope reminded them of their spiritual heritage. He wasn't just speaking to the church. He was speaking to everybody, reminding them of the spiritual heritage. It was one of the greatest events ever as he reminded people what was happening there. Daniel chapter 6. Remember the lion's den thing? 
Daniel so distinguished himself among the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to put him over the whole kingdom. At this, the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel's conduct of government affairs, but they could find no corruption in him <laughs> because he's trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. What a good word. What a good word. What a good word. 1 Peter 2. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Doing good. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor who? That's Nero. Peter says to the Jewish people, honor the emperor, and the emperor is Nero, the most evil man perhaps that ever ruled a country. How do you honor Nero? But that's what we do. We honor and serve the emperor with excellence. We do. My thing is I will honor those which honor Jesus Christ. I will not honor anybody who, I will not honor anything that dishonors Jesus, but the, temp, the point is they're mixed. Daniel 1, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the world of food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in that way. Daniel 2, so the decree was issued to put wise men to death because it didn't tell the king his dream. Men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. And what's happening is we serve and honor with excellence, but we also resist evil commands respectfully. We resist respectfully. We're in a place right now where a whole lot of people are into resistance, but they're not doing it respectfully. How do you live in that tension between honor, resist, respect, but it doesn't stop there? Daniel chapter 4, after he is in, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he asks Daniel to tell him what it means. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him that he saw the interpretation of the dream. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty. You will be driven away from the people who live in the, with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. He's saying this to Nebuchadnezzar, who throws people in lion's dens. Therefore, Your Majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. You serve with excellence, you honor, you resist evil commands respectfully, and you call him to repentance. I think of that coming from a personal perspective. George H.W. Bush, President of the United States, one of the finest diplomatic politicians ever to take the presidency. He's the one who started the points of light that we still honor and laud. He's a guy who championed the Americans with Disabilities Acts that's made things accessible for people who are in wheelchairs or handicapped, and we laud him for that. He oversaw the falling of the Berlin Wall with incredible wisdom. He's also the guy who started the first Gulf War, supposedly the war to liberate Kuwait, which was an absolute sham in my judgment. He was there to protect oil prices in the United States. 
then and now, I say that was wrong. I honored George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, in many ways, but not in that way. I think that was a sinful act of national self-protection that we didn't have to get into. Bill Clinton, his successor, his campaign promise to end welfare as we've come to know it led to what was popularly called workfare, a huge advance in a society where people were handed money. No, he said, you've got to work. And I laud him for that. And then there was Monica Lewinsky, which we all, everybody, said, that's garbage. We honor and call to Barack Obama, exemplary family man. He and Michelle, I mean, to every possible thing you know, had an out, have an outstanding marriage. Raised these two girls with incredible wisdom in the spotlight of the White House. At one of his daughter's high school graduation, they wanted him to be the commencement speaker for obvious reasons. His response, no way, it's their show, not mine. Sat in the back and didn't talk to anybody. In his 2008 Father's Day oration at Apostolic Church in Chicago, he said this, here at Apostolic, you are blessed to worship in a house that is founded on the rock of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Of all the rocks of what we build our lives, reminded today that family is the most important. But if we're honest ourselves, we'll admit that too many fathers are also missing missing from too many lives and too many homes. They've abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men. And he went on particularly to his own community, the African-American community, and called out men and said, your responsibility is not in at conception. Stand up and be men and be fathers. I lauded it then, I laud it now. Incredibly godly thing to do. He also championed gay marriage, which on biblical grounds, I have to say, that's sin. You honor and resist. You can't be black and white. Donald Trump. This is the Warsaw Uprising Monument. It celebrates 1944 when the people of Poland resisted the Nazi oppressors who were incredibly cruel. They've been through the museum in Warsaw. And the front is people coming out of the sewers to, for 63 days to fight against the Nazi oppressors. The back is coming out from under bridge abundant. It's a, in a park in downtown Warsaw. This past Wednesday, Thursday there, Donald Trump spoke in front of that monument. And in that spot he said, remembered Pope Paul, John Paul's sermon, said this, Polish men, women, children suddenly raised their voices in a single prayer. A million Polish people did not ask for wealth. I'm quoting Donald Trump. They did not ask for privilege. Instead, one million Poles sang three simple words, we want God. He remembered what happened nearby. Then he said this, as I stand here today before this incredible crowd, this faithful nation, we can still hear those voices that echo through history. Their message is true today as ever. The people of Poland, the people of America, the people of Europe still cry out, we want God. We write symphonies. We pursue innovation. We celebrate ancient heroes and embrace our timeless traditions and customs, always seek to explore and discover brand new frontiers. We reward brilliance. We strive for excellence, cherish inspiring works of art that honor God, 
We treasure the rule of law and protect the right of free speech and free expression. We empower women as pillars of our society and of our success. We put faith and family, not government and bureaucracy, at the centers of our lives. And above all, we value the dignity of every human life, protect the rights of every person, and share the hope of every soul to live in freedom. I honor that man for that speech. He's the same guy that insults junior high tweets against people who insult him. How can you live with that? How can you live with that? But that's what we do as far as Jesus Christ. We honor that which honors Jesus, and we call out that which is not. And we do it all respectfully. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, the poor. We celebrate and protect the sanctity of life, especially that of the worthless person, so-called. The widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the poor. That's what we do. Gender, marriage, family, those are God's gifts. We're in a society that's attacking those things, and what we do in that spot is we live them devotedly instead of attacking those who reject this truth. Team, you want to come up here? We're going to sing here in just a moment. Gender and marriage and family are under unparalleled attack in our current culture. And there's a call to kick back with anger, and we refuse to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to live it well. Married people live with faithfulness to your spouse. Single people live with integrity to the God of the universe. Serve Jesus and all of that. Family, we're going to, not only our own kids, but other kids who need help, and we're going to do this together. And we're not going to go out and rail and yell at people who take the opposite view. We're going to serve them with excellence in the name of Jesus and call them to righteousness. You've seen this before. Live as the kingdom of the most high. We love God. Live faithfully as a community of the spirit. Love and serve your neighbor and your enemy. Introduce people to the hopeful gospel. That's what we do. That's what we're about. A song that has caught my attention, I find myself singing it a lot, is really good song. It is well with my soul. Uh, what's your name? Christine DeMarco. Sorry, my head is somewhere else. Christine DeMarco wrote this. She's at Bethel down in Reading. Turns out Meredith here is at Bethel School. And uh, this is Christine DeMarco and her kids at Disneyland. Of course, you should go there. Take your kids. She's an incredible worship leader. This is her husband, Jordan, doing what good fathers should do. And when they sing, It Is Well With My Soul, that's the call. We've got prayer team and communion stations over to the sides during the song if you need to have it be better with your soul. Do it. Lead us. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.